Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, buckle up! So, I'm going to kick us off for the first full episode of 2019. Whoa! Uh, it's here, it's happened. I think at least three people have been looking forward to this. <laughs> So I'm going to um, tell you about a crime um, and most of the research is comes from an old documentary that I watched called Great Crimes and Trials, The Mackay Kidnapping, and then backed up with lots of lovely info from Graham Honeycomb and the Murders of the Black Museum because we love him. This was a really interesting one that I oh, for a change. Yeah, for a change. <laughs> like maybe my last couple were a bit meh. This one I was actually, you know, but sometimes obviously we do this, we work, maybe it's because we've had a break, but I like was interested in this one and like, oh, I'm looking forward to finding out more information, reading around it. Sometimes it can feel a bit like a chore when you've got <laughs> lots of things. Yeah, it's like homework. But this one was like, oh, reignited my interest and sparked it but i think it's probably one that lots of other people will know a lot about because it was so big at the time in 1970 so i think quite a lot of our listeners will probably remember this um and i know it irritates them when we say that we don't know about these sort of things but i didn't know about this one it stars <laughs> the leading role is played by um mrs muriel Mackay and her husband alexander benson Mackay. Um, he was known as Alec, mostly. And they were Australians. And they met when they were teenagers. And they got married when they were like 18 in 1935. But then Alec got into the newspaper business through a connection on Muriel's side. And they started working for Murdoch's News Limited. And in 1957, he was given the job of advertisement director for the Daily Mirror. And the couple then relocated to London and to this fabulous house in Wimbledon. Really fancy. Um, so the couple were really prosperous and Alec was eventually given a CBE, like one of the lesser ones, but I don't think the sword's involved, but it's still okay. And in 1969, when he was age 60, he was due to retire but um, the newly in charge Rupert Murdoch, who had just come, obviously his dad, who taken over from his dad, who you may know as head of obviously all the newspapers, Fox as well, um, he offered Alec another job as deputy chairman of the newly relaunched News of the World. They just paid out millions of pounds to buy out the newspaper, which was at the time the most widely circulated um, newspaper in England, and they just bought it. And so he wanted Alec. So he did. He took over. And then he was acting chairman because Rupert, having done that, was like, right, I'm going to bugger off to Australia now for six weeks at Christmas. So took his wife and left. But he did give Alec the use of his company car, which was a dark blue Rolls Royce. That was always like the height of success, wasn't it? If you had a Rolls. Yeah, came with the chauffeur. Wow. And might have had to sleep in it. but like Mr. Big. Yeah, are we watching Sex and the City? <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a few of these references. Okay. So this was Monday, the 29th of December in 1969, when Mrs. Muriel Mackay went missing. Her husband, Alec, returned home at 7.45pm that day. And he's so, like, middle class at this point that he didn't even have keys to his house. 
the chauffeur just dropped him off and he would have a special ring on the doorbell that he'd do so his wife would know it was him like apparently three short and one long let me in now <laughs> what if it's not if he doesn't do that no, it just ignores it i think she just knows it's not him like maybe keep the chain on or something no. but so he rang the doorbell and no one was coming um, and he thought, oh, maybe she's just upstairs or something. It's a fucking mansion. But when he tried the door, he found that it opened really easily. The security chain wasn't on. And then the inner set of doors, like off the porch, they were also open. When he went through, he immediately noticed that there were items strewn about the floor that looked like her handbag had just been tipped up and put everywhere. There was also um, what they called a wooden handled bill hook which is sort of like a scythe it was oh, just shit. it was quite rusty there wasn't blood or anything on it but there was this big scythe there and then like a vintage weapon isn't it <laughs> like, yes even for the what was it the 70s 1969 yeah, yeah so it's like old agricultural yeah. tool um, and then he went further into the house and he noticed that the fireplace still had a burning fire in and he said that this was a clear indicator as someone who knew his wife really well that she'd left the house by force because she was really nervous of fire, really like meticulous about making sure that she always put the fire guard up if ever she was leaving the room or anything. Um, he then had an interview and he said, um, I'm going to quote, he said, I think no man in the world could say that his wife wouldn't leave him. I really believe she wouldn't leave me. I'm quite sure that she wouldn't leave the dog in front of an open fire, which I think <laughs> you can attest to yeah. that it's one thing to get fed up with your partner, but the dog is yeah. number one. I mean, it's not quite the same, but since I got my hamster, <laughs> I don't know. I don't love the hamster more than the dog. It's not a dog relationship, but one thing that has definitely happened that I didn't think would is the singing about the pets. Yes, it's automatic, isn't it? Like straight away, like what was it? Did, like just before you came, Tom was going around like saying, "All the Phyllis, leave your fellas at home." <laughs> it's like singing, jumping. The, the hamster's called Phyllis. Like, <laughs> I've um, got like the best of now for Charlie. <laughs> I'm not even thinking, I'm singing like one of my Charlie songs. Yeah, you're just going around singing about Phyllis all the time. Like, okay, that's obviously a thing. I'll let you know when we get our <laughs> top three. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so she'd left the dog and she'd left the fire going where the dog was roaming around. He was like, she's definitely not left um, of her own accord. She wouldn't have done this. So about eight o'clock, not long after he just had a look around, he called the police. Um, and then he also called the Sun newspaper, which was another one in their conglomerate and told them that his wife was missing. And this annoyed the police greatly because I guess they thought it seemed really callous that he was like, the first thing he did was, right, we're going to get this in the headlines but then I think if you had the power of being able to control it and your loved one was missing you'd want to get their face out there wouldn't you yeah I guess it's like going out and searching isn't it but being able to do that on a massive scale yeah instead of putting up posters he's like getting it across the whole country her yeah. face right in the front newspaper I think the annoying thing was that he did it so quickly before the police had had chance to consider their strategy because sometimes you don't want them to know that you're looking for them and you want to yeah. drive them drive them out. Whereas if she's everywhere, it might cause them to kill her rather than risk yeah. her being seen or something like that. So then initially the police were quite suspicious of Alec, partly because he was like so interested in pushing it in the media and partly because of the way that the objects had been left in this hallway. It, one of the um, inspectors, the sergeants, D.S. Birch, he said that it looked as if it had been set up like an amateur production of an Agatha Christie killer thriller because it was just placed around like chairs sort of knocked over, like not in a tussle, just like, I'm going to make it look as if there's been a fight. And obviously no blood, no things like that, just placed it looked like. So were they thinking that he'd... He, he'd been involved then at this point. Yeah, I think they thought that it might be a big publicity stunt to sell papers. Oh, God. We, well, I mean... I, mean, I, I guess stranger things have happened, but... I'm going to say, I don't want to claim to know everything about the scandals involving news of the world, but there have been scandals, especially yeah. the phone hacking thing. Yeah. Um, people have done some really shitty things at that company <laughs> to sell newspapers. 
sometime after 1am, um, the Mackay house received a telephone call from a phone box in Epping. And that's not because they had, I thought like, ooh, they traced that really quickly. Well done. But back then, obviously, the operator would, hi, you've got a phone call coming through from this phone box. Um, I think if I lived then, I'd want to be an operator. I don't understand how people had affairs before mobile phones. How would you ever meet up? They'd have to phone your house. Exactly. Or letters. It, well, it's like the old films. What's that? Is it Brief Encounters or something? Where she has to get the train, the same train, every day, on a Thursday, because it's market day. Is it? I don't know if it's Brief. It's an old black and white film, maybe Brief where she gets like Thursday, so she goes and she meets this guy in the train station, but then some days he doesn't show up. Yeah. So he thinks she's got... You just have to wait around for hours. Yeah. You just have people. to be in a certain place and hope for the best. Yeah. getting stood up would have been so much worse oh my god you can't really get stood up the same way now no because you can just phone them like where the hell are you yeah i can see your post on instagram (laughs) so yeah so they had this phone call coming through from this random phone box and basically it said this they said we're the mafia m3 i don't that doesn't ring any bells to me i don't but about some sect mafia m3 we have your wife we tried to get Rupert Murdoch's wife. We couldn't get her, so we took yours instead. You have a million pounds by Wednesday night, or we'll kill her. All you have to do is wait for the contact. Have your money, or you won't have a wife. So, quite serious. But then, things sort of got really weird back at the house. It was so outlandish. This, like, oh, it's the mafia ringing up. They didn't want your wife and they need this million pounds, which was a huge amount back then. Even these Mackays who lived in this fabulous house with this big job, they couldn't get that kind of money. Um, I think they bought the newspaper for a couple of million. So it's like huge deals. It wasn't possible. Also, do the mafia call themselves the mafia? I don't think so. We are the mafia. (laughs) Like, it's it just seems a bit ludicrous. Yeah, so the police were obviously like, well, that's great but we're still going to search this house and we still need to question you and we need to question your children. Who were, They were all grown-up kids, but I'd come. They're like, that's great, but we're just going to like yeah. consider everything else as well. Yeah, they took it. I'm not saying they ignored it, but they definitely were like, we need to consider the possibility that this is a hoax for publicity. Um, yeah, we've got to, because it's just the mafia just ringing up and it didn't see, make sense. And the fact that it was the wrong woman, all of this stuff. But obviously the family were getting quite annoyed. They felt that the inquiries were being misdirected and that they were focusing in the wrong area. And so it was a very, very tense situation. The next day, well, it was the same day because it was after midnight, uh, around nearly five o'clock on the Tuesday, the mafia got through to the house again. And they said that a letter from Mrs. Mackay had been posted. And then they said, have you got the money? Obviously they haven't. So then the next morning, on Wednesday, 31st of December now, the letter arrived that they said was coming. And it had been written sort of all over, like, odd lines, um, because she'd been asked to do it blindfolded. So she'd (laughs) scribbled everywhere. And it said, it was in her writing, but it was really, really shaky and not great. And it said, please do something to get me home. I'm blindfolded and cold, only blankets, Please cooperate. I cannot keep going. I think of you constantly. What have I done to deserve this? Love, Muriel. So the police were like, we need to keep this a secret. We've got to, you know, collect our intelligence and deal with it without letting the kidnappers know what we're doing. But again, uh, Mr. Mackay wanted to use his power in the media to do it. So the letter was photographed published oh, the next day everything was out there and the oh, children what does he gain from that though by putting it out there because it's just sort of like depressing i know i think he just thinks someone knows something and the more people that we tell and that like, if we keep it in the headlines like we had it in the headlines once and then if it goes away people yeah. forget whereas if we bring every new bit of evidence then it's the front page again isn't it and people won't forget about it yeah i guess so so his couple of his adult children, they went on TV against advice and made pleas. And then Mr. Mackay asked people to contact him by any means with any information. He was like, post it, um, ring me, come see me. If you've got information, I need to know. 
So basically everybody started contacting him, like loads of prank phone calls, which obviously kept the house line busy yeah, all of the shit. time. So he like put out his house number. Yep. I was like, yeah, because if, if he's sort of a bit of a celebrity, he'll just get loads of people just phoning up like, hi. <laughs> yeah, he was really desperate and was like, I'm going to do everything. But then people just took advantage. People are horrible. Yeah. I can't imagine being like, oh, his wife's missing. Let's ring him up and say we've got her. But that's what people were doing. Um, They were contacted by spiritualists and mediums as well, who, well, I think that's probably almost as bad. Because it's going to miss, because, yeah, because this family were desperate and they were getting information from mediums and saying, well, we can't ignore anything. And police time and their time was being spent chasing these avenues because there were no others. Um, But once a few spirits, they were like, we can contact this other guy. There was a well-known clairvoyant called Gerard Croisset who lived in Belgium and he sort of knew the family and he was quite popular. So he... um, didn't come over. He like looked at a photograph and had a bit of a think about it. And um, do you know, I don't want to be, I know people believe, like, you know, when it's like, if you hear about your dead relatives and it gives them comfort, I'm on board with that. And that's, I'm not fine a little bit. I think it's exploitation. But then there's, but when they say that they know people, like I, Obviously, I've mentioned before, I'm obsessed with James Randi, who, like, debunks all these people. And now they watch loads of YouTube compilations of psychic fails. And <laughs> there's... Nothing better than a psychic fail. There's a woman, I can't remember her name. Sylvia Brown, I think? Obviously, has smoked a pack an hour her whole life this blonde hair and she like the monsters inc like yes and she goes on she well in like the 90s and early 2000s she'd go on shows like montel and jesse was it jesse raphael sally jesse raphael (laughs) the one like all of those ones and would people in the audience would ask about missing relatives and she would tell them stuff she'd be like yeah they're dead Oh like oh yeah you won't find a body it's in water but she would and there's so many where they were like, oh, we just want to... There was one couple where they were like, we want to know where our son, where our son's body is. And she was like, you won't find it. It's in water. And they were like, he was a fireman in 9-11? And she was oh, like, well, I don't know how, but his lungs are full of water. And that's what it is. Oh, shit. And just wouldn't back down because she didn't want to be wrong. So it's all... That's... If we're going to have a... If we're going to have a scale of how shit it is, I think trying to get involved with the police and with criminal investigations is the shittest yeah. use of them. But anyway, so this clairvoyant, he gave some vague information about, um, he said she's being held in a white farm, there's a green barn, it's north-northeast of London, um, and if she's not found in 14 days, then she will be dead. So the police didn't really have any leads, so they did spend time checking this out and they did scour the area. And, of course, full details were published in the newspapers, which then led to even more false information about it. It made it look like the the spiritualists were the ones leading the investigation and making it look like the police weren't doing anything and it just was causing a lot of distrust. So then, Thursday the 1st of January... At 7.40pm, the M3 kidnappers got through to the house again and they were quite pissed off that they kept getting an engaged phone <laughs> yeah. call, to be honest. Like trying to make a doctor's appointment. Like, for yeah. fuck's sake. Yeah. Um, and they were angry that the family were working with the police because obviously now it's all over the newspapers that the police are searching this area. And so they were demanding, like, you need to get this £1 million. We need it in £5 notes. We need it in £10 notes. And then that was the last phone call that they'd get for several days. So the phone still rang constantly. One call um, was a guy offering to return Muriel Mackay for £500 on Platform 5 of Wimbledon Railway Station. So D.I. Minor, he dressed in Mr. Mackay's hat and coat and went there. Because I bet they were like, that's a bloody bargain. Yeah. All right. Um, Obviously, it's bullshit. Yeah, so he didn't take £500. He took £150 and then some, like, fake paper money and then went to the station 
And then it was just some 19-year-old lad who was working as a waiter. So he just arrested him and he was fined £100 for attempting to obtain money by deception. But like, I just can't think like how sick that is. Yeah, that's grim. Trying to make money off this situation. I think, you know, because like you said, because he's so rich, this Mister, this Alec Mackay is so rich. And because it's these big newspaper tycoons and everything, maybe people feel like, they can take advantage of them a little more. Maybe he's just a stupid teenager. Like if actual Rupert Murdoch's wife had been... I mean, by all accounts, um, Muriel Mackay was a lovely woman. Everyone said she was just so kind and so nice. If actual Muriel Mackay's... uh, Muriel. If actual Rupert Murdoch's wife was kidnapped and Rupert Murdoch is a bit of a crap man, as he is, Maybe people would be like, I'm going to make false phone calls because yeah. he's a horrible person. I think there's always just like... That but I of, wouldn't. Like yeah. a nice person wouldn't. No, it's just all the sort of slightly strange people that... Yeah, I think just people are weird. And plus it was the 70s, so like people were super bored. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, you didn't love... And it's that awkward period between Christmas and New Year yeah. when nothing's going on for anyone. Yeah. Um, so another hoax phone call had police officers go undercover on a bus. So they were going to have this weird meeting on this number 46 or something. So I don't know why. I think there were some, probably because there were hardly any female officers. One, they wanted it to be the daughter. So one male officer had to dress in drag as if he was the Mackay's daughter, Diane. Yeah, so then the other two burly ones, they had to dress as workmen and they sat on the bus as well, just not together. And then they had two police cars following the bus, but absolutely nothing came of it except the fact that the bus driver ended up calling the police to report the cars that were following him because he was like, I don't know what's going on, but these two cars are driving really strangely and won't leave me alone. Um, and then another more persistent hoax caller was jailed for three years when he was eventually caught outside a public toilet in an underground station in East London, which seems a really long time. Like that other lad got fined a hundred pounds. This guy must have been doing some horrific call. It does. I can't. Don't know exactly what he's doing, but he must have been spending his time doing it. One other person made a written demand that. And he sent it to a newspaper and he said that he would release Mrs. Mackay once newspapers stopped printing personal stories about the lives of young women. Um, he said that he'd, that it was reading stories about like socialites and models and celebrities that had caused him to lose his 12 year old daughter. What? Now he didn't say whether she'd died or just become like estranged from him but he said like i lost my daughter because she was influenced by the stories that she read in your newspaper and so i won't release her unless you stop printing any sort of personal stories it's a very specific grievance yeah i thought well at least that one's not well i suppose it is saying that imagine how much easier this would have been if it hadn't been in the newspapers though yeah because they'd have had so like fewer Cool. Yeah, it was just constant ringing, like constant people getting involved. Um, then on the 10th of January, uh, they received a letter which was complaining about the fact that they couldn't ring. So, <laughs> so it's already been like nine days since they last called them and they had were forced to send a letter saying... Oh my God. It's the first rule of like hostage negotiation. Make sure you've got a direct line to the kidnappers. Well, I think the first rule of hostage negotiation is have your plan in place. Like, they knew they wanted the money, and I think they, in their head they were waiting for them to say, we've got a million pounds, but they needed a deadline that they were going to stick to. Already this feels like it's dragged on too long. It's the 10th of January. She went missing on the 29th of December. It's going to go on for a quite a lot longer, and they've not said when they want the money, yeah. where they want the money. They've just said... We need the million, have you got it? We need the million, have you got it? And it wasn't happening. So M3 did eventually call again on the 14th of January. And now they were asking for the million pound to be paid in two halves at different locations, but still didn't say when and where they wanted it to happen. Um, The police did have tape recordings now of the phone call and they deduced that the accent was either West Indian or American. 
So the next thing that they tried to do was if we're going to have all of this media attention, then we might as well try and use it to pressure the kidnappers into giving some sort of information and making contact about the handover. So they arranged an interview with Mrs. Mackay's doctor where the press was sort of handing and they said that they would claim that she was suffering from a medical condition that required her to have regular injections, which she was on cortisone injections for arthritis, but they were having the doctor say that her life's in great danger. Like she needs to get home quick and get her injections or she's going to die. And obviously then the kidnappers would lose their leverage. So they were trying to make them hurry up. It was quite, I mean, the doctor will not win any awards for improv (laughs) because they're like, so does she need them for the pain? He was like, Yes, for the pain. And they're like, so is she in danger? Yes, she might die when? Three months. I'm like, that's not quick enough. Like, he wasn't very good. So then, Monday, 19th of January now. So she's been missing for well over two weeks. Um, They called and they had their longest phone conversation. They spoke for 35 minutes with Alec Mackay. But he was completely at the end of where he could cope with this and he was getting right really emotional and shouting and just not able obviously they want you to have like a really logical calm conversation and get the information from them you want and he just was like this he's like I'm done with this like I can't get you the money it's like just kill me like just come and shoot me if that's what you want or like take me instead like bring her back and switch me in and just wait and you can kill me if you want to like he just couldn't cope anymore so then it was decided that after that that all calls would be answered by the his son Ian Mackay and he was to try and develop a bit more of a rapport with the kidnappers um, so Wednesday the 21st of January, this seemed to work because Ian answered a call and then they had this discussion that the police wouldn't be involved anymore, like I promised, and we won't tell them anything. On the 22nd, the next day, letters arrived with a handwritten note from um, Muriel Mackay, blindfolded again, all over the place, and begging them to cooperate with what she called the gang. Um Then they had another letter from the kidnappers, which was a more detailed set of ransom instructions, which told them to bring 500,000 in Muriel's car to a telephone box on the A10 in Edmonton on the 1st of February at 10 p.m. So they were like, right. So the next day, the M3... What, and then they'd release her? Yes. So they've halved the money? Yeah, because they just need it done. They keep saying we can't get a million and they couldn't get so. Right. So then the next day they called up and said, uh, basically they just rang them like, we're just checking you've got the letters that we sent. It all seems oh, really God. like they're yeah. making it up as they go. Like sort of chatty, like, oh yeah. Well, they Did wanted to them? make sure they'd sent the letters, but I don't know why they were like, we'll send the letters and then ring to check they've got them. Why don't they just ring them and say, here's the plan. Yeah. It made no sense, but that's what they'd done. But Ian, however, was saying we need proof that she's still alive because um, they said in the very first phone calls that if you don't do it in a week or something, then we're going to kill her. So they could have already done yeah, it. Yeah, and got her to write those letters ages ago. Yes. So in response, they sent more notes that Muriel had written and they'd also cut pieces of her clothing that she was wearing the day she disappeared and sent them. And the letters were really despairing. It was Muriel a lot of begging, saying that she wanted to give up. And it was really, they're not very nice. Um, But the police said it wasn't possible to tell how long ago they'd been written. Yeah, unless she says, oh, you said this in the phone call yesterday. There's no, yeah, there was no indication that she knew of current events. There was not, I don't mean in the news, but like obviously with the investigation, no like, photograph of her with the today's newspaper so they it wasn't really enough but then the first of february rolled around so so i mean it's going so long now from december to february so it's like if yeah remember the 29th of january we're not even in february yet it's like the whole time we've been back at work so a police officer dressed as ian Mackay set off in the rolls royce which obviously wasn't the car they wanted. He had another police officer dressed as a chauffeur. 
and he had his arm in a sling so that he could put his radio inside the sling and then had a suitcase of money bundles. You know, like how Instagrammers will be like, I'll put a 50 on the front, a 50 on the back and a load of paper in the middle and you'll think I'm balling. And then they set off to make the drop. So they knew the area. So they had like around 150 policemen involved in this. They had the car going. They had basically the area. It was quite rural, villagey. So it was a bit weird that there was this amount of people. But they were all dressed up. There was like... Oh, really? There was like some people as like bikers. There were like some like couples strolling. There were people everywhere. But... Because they, well, they had... all men and like half of them in drag, like <laughs> possibly. Um, but there were like people hiding in bushes, hiding in ditches, like sitting in the pub. So they had this whole range of disguises, but it was just a bit too obvious that there's a police present there, presence there, because there it was it was busy. <laughs> yeah, like there's a quiet little town. Um, and they saw that the they thought maybe we're being followed, so nobody came to collect the oh money. My God. So then the M3 kidnappers prepared a new plan. They want the money now in two suitcases and they wanted Alec Mackay and his daughter Diane, because now they don't trust Ian anymore, to go to the same phone box on Friday the 6th of February. And then so two officers dressed as the part again and they had a third officer hide in the boot of the car. Um, so the rolls were sent to the, a number of telephone boxes. Each time they'd get there, it would either ring and they'd say, go to this one. And then you'll find a cigarette packet on the floor, which will tell you where to go next. And it was a bit of a weird scavenger hunt. Eventually they told them to go leave the car and go on the underground to Epping, where they would receive a phone call from another box when they got off. When they were there, they were told you need to get a taxi now to Bishop Stortford, where you can leave the suitcases by a minivan that's parked in a garage forecourt and gave them the registration. Then you can leave. So I think they were just trying to make sure that the police couldn't follow them, changing the location so many times. Um, The officer in the boot did manage to keep along with them. He would sort of, when they got in the taxi, they asked them to stop the taxi and he like crawled in and like (laughs) lay in the footwell and... So he was there. So it seemed like everything was finally going to plan. They managed to get the suitcases in the location. And then a local couple spotted these two white suitcases left on the floor and were, oh my gosh, someone's left their luggage. So they called the local police. The wife stayed, stood next to the suitcases so they wouldn't get stolen. The husband went and phoned the police who came and picked up the suitcases. Oh God, bloody do-gooders. You can't do, like the general public have ruined this whole thing. From the hoaxes to the people trying to help, it's just an absolute nightmare. Like, no good. So all was not completely lost. So DS Bland was the guy in the boot. And obviously he like had to keep crawling out and not make it seem like there was a third guy with them. So he'd been observing the whole situation from across the road. And he noticed this dark blue Volvo drive a couple of times and slow down every time it got past these suitcases. He noted the registration number. Well done, Mr. Bland. And then checked it up. Records showed that this belonged to a man named Arthur Hussain, who was living at Rooks Farm on the border of Essex and Hertfordshire, which was only a few miles from where the police had been searching on the clairvoyance tip. Oh, shit. So So if it was like marks for being almost right. Yeah, he (laughs) did pretty good. I mean, I just think if I die, if I die and I'm able to communicate, I'm going to be really frank. I'm just going to tell you, not like, well, it's near a white building. There's a pond. I'm like, this is the address. Go. (laughs) Otherwise, there's no point. When did they all become so so frustrating when they die? Unless it's something about the nature of eternity that makes you not give a shit anymore. And you're like... I can't understand detail when I have the whole universe swimming through my consciousness. I think I've convinced myself. (laughs) They've got a name and an address. 
So the next morning, police descend on the farm where they were greeted by Elsa Hussein, who opened the door and they said that they were had a tip about some stolen jewellery in the area and they were hoping to search. So she let them straight in. Arthur Hussein was there and his brother Nizamuddin and they were like, we haven't done anything but feel free to look around. They seemed fairly okay with it. Um, there was no sign of Muriel Mackay, but they did find the exact notebook that had been used for Muriel to write her letters in. There were also some paper flowers that like, I think they'd been playing with and made for the Hussein children. And these, there had been at one of the other drop-off points, they said, you'll know where to go because there'll be some paper flowers for where I want you to leave the suitcases. They also found a sawn off shotgun and they could match Arthur Hussain's fingerprints on that to the ones that were on the ransom demands, the oh, envelopes. Shit. There was one of those bill hooks that had been left in the um, Mackay's house when Muriel had been kidnapped. They found another one, almost identical, and the one that was at the Mackay's house had Arthur Hussain's fingerprints on as well. So despite all of this and the search of the surrounding area, there was actually no evidence of Muriel ever uncovered. No clothing, no fingerprints of hers, no hair, no sign that there'd been a person hidden. Yeah, because you think you'd, you'd find... A, like, if she's been tied up blindfolded, you think you'd find something. Yeah. So, the two brothers, Arthur and Nizam, were arrested and charged with kidnapping and blackmail. Um, so, the pair of them, they'd been born in Trinidad, so quite they were quite accurate with the area and their father had worked as a tailor he was quite high standing in the muslim community like an elder at the mosque um and then arthur came to england in 1955 and worked as a tailor in hackney which is in east london um he worked he went on national service um but deserted and got six months in prison he met his wife elsa and they both settled in essex but Arthur was a bit of a character. He had these dreams of being like a proper English gentleman and wanted to have a place in like the upper echelons of proper English society as he saw it. So he borrowed money extensively in order to buy this Rook's farm and the land and wanted to be part of the country set. So he tried to join the local hunt group uh, but he couldn't ride a horse. He didn't have enough money. Um, and he was he had quite bad relationships with his neighbours. They found him quite arrogant, um, quite abrasive, because he was so brash. He thought that he had to be really showy-offy and loud. and It just wasn't working. So he began to increasingly struggle for money, um, and it seemed like his dream was falling apart. Uh, Nizam was the young, his younger brother. There were seven Hussein brothers. And he was 21 at the time of the kidnap. He had then come over to England and was living with Arthur and his wife, Elsa, and their children. And then it seems that the plan had happened because the pair of them were watching the news. And it was on the news about how um, the Murdochs had bought the news of the world and it had been a couple of million pounds deal and they were like how can we get some of this money yeah I'm like well let's if they're the ones who've got the millions let's kidnap their wife and get it from them so there came the plan to kidnap and ransom Rupert Murdoch's wife Anna so the pair had followed the Rolls Royce to what they thought was Rupert Murdoch's house and obviously didn't know that he was away in Australia and Mr. Mackay was using it. So it's so unfortunate that yeah. it wasn't even supposed to be there. Um, so obviously it was Christmas when it happened. So Arthur's wife, Elsa, and the children had all gone to Germany to visit the other side of the family at Christmas. So they thought it was the perfect time to carry out this plan. Police did do extensive searches for traces of murals still. Um, and eventually they just said that She's most likely dead. And they added murder to the list of charges against the pair. So they never found her? Oh. Handwriting experts then added to the evidence saying that they thought it was Arthur that had written the ransom notes 
and they were pretty sure that it was Nizam who'd been making the majority of the phone calls. They were both remanded in custody for seven months, during which time Nizam tried to take his own life twice. Um, he complained that Arthur was always getting into trouble, that it was his fault, he, he's he been involved and not me. Arthur's... I mean, it's more than trouble, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Arthur sort of said that Nizam was involved but not but neither of them really confessed to anything but Arthur did it said that he did enjoy the attention and he would talk constantly even though they never really said that they'd done anything they both they talked about the fact that they'd followed Rupert and made inquiries about his car but oh we didn't actually take uh, Muriel so the trial took place at the Old Bailey on Monday the 14th of September in 1970 and then by the 6th of October they were both found guilty they were each given a life sentence for the murder of Muriel Mackay. And then Arthur was given an additional 25 years for the kidnap and blackmail. And Nizam was given an additional 15 years. They thought he can have 10 less because he's not really the brains behind it. They thought he'd been manipulated and dominated. So like I said, no one was knew what's happened to Muriel. Um, so some reports say that they heard gunshots on New Year's Day. Um, some people say that her body was likely fed to the pigs, but, um, none of them were ever like, cause none of them were ever killed to see if they had traces of her medication in their system. And then some people say that she must've been held at a totally separate location. There must be a third party involved in this. Um, only the Hussein brothers will ever really know what happened. Um, eventually Nizam... Um, Nizamuddin Hussain was released he was deported to Trinidad in 1990 um, and Arthur was released in 2003 but then died quite soon after they did have their wax works in Madame Tussauds Chamber of Horrors I couldn't find a picture of them I'm sure I can't find a picture of them but the photographs of them do look pretty waxy A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so I am going to tell you the story of Emma Jane Magson. So, <laughs> I had a little bit of a panic then. I was like, am I unpunked? What's going on? So, um, this is a really, really recent story. Uh, so, March 2006. Is it me? Am I having like those fugues? Because <laughs> I'm an Emma Jane as well. People are going to be able to find out my whole life. Yeah. But yeah. That's really common. It's been like one of the top baby names for like forever. March 2016, Emma Jane Magson um, went out with... God, a- it's, it's so weird. <laughs> Sorry, it's making me shit. It's like when the kids like say, she's called Emma. Like, they call her name. Like, yeah, it makes me feel weird. Go on. Um, so she went out uh, with a work colleague for drinks and then she met up with her ex-boyfriend in a pub. How very Emma. <laughs> in a pub in town and they lived in Leicester. And his name was James Knight. And uh, while they were out, they began to have an argument. <laughs> that is not... That's not It's me. you. <laughs> I didn't have an argument. No. Not at uh, time, anyway. No. So they basically, they went to a club and they had an argument. And then uh, they got a taxi back, had an argument in the taxi on the way home. Uh, they approached the house and um, he stayed outside and she ran in. She went to the kitchen 
grabbed a steak knife and killed him. Oh God! Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, she did. Uh, I'm just like we're there already. Bish bash bosh. Raised it up, plunged it into his chest. It hits his heart. 11.5 centimetres into his oh, chest. Oh, God. Now, the neighbours he- have heard the shouting. She must have been really hench. Well, you'd think so, but she wasn't. Because you know when you do CPR, they're like, you need to do chest compressions with a depth of like five centimetres. And I was like, how the fuck am I supposed to measure the depth when I'm pushing on you? Exactly. But also, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, she didn't realise it had gone in that far. Um, the neighbours heard the shouting. They came outside to see James covered in blood. Emma says, he's been in a fight with bouncers. Don't worry, I'll take him inside. And the neighbours heard James saying, my heart is bleeding. And they think, oh God, overdramatic much. <laughs> like, it's just an argument. And then, so they think he's speaking metaphorically. And they go inside. And then he dies shortly after his injuries. But um, they knew he was bleeding. Yeah, but they thought he'd like been in a punch up. So they're like, he's bleeding and he's telling you your heart's bleeding, but oh, you emotional little so Yeah, well, they thought he was like upset. And um, so he dies shortly after of his injuries and um, she didn't call the ambulance for 30 minutes. So, so that's the story. That's what got reported. That's sort of the story that got told on trial, but there's more to it than that. So we're going to go back. Okay. So Emma Jane Magson was born in 1993 in Leicester. When she was only eight months old, she began to witness domestic violence. So her father and her mother were in a violent relationship and her mother uh, was attacked by her father right in front of her and her older sister. Oh, He'd actually locked them all in the flat and um, he'd attempted to stab her mother in the throat. Now She'd sort of fought him off, but she'd got slashes on her legs as a result and she got scars from this um she phoned the police she reported it and she did get away but um the girls that's and that's mother... so traumatic for a oh, child for... to see and uh, so the girls and her mother were put in a safe house um and the mother's injuries um was so severe she had to learn to walk again so these oh. are like some deep stabs oh so it wasn't like a fight like they really affected their lives like yeah, you can't yeah. forget it then can you if you're seeing your mother have to go through that really extensive rehabilitation like yeah you can't just be like carry on with your life yeah yeah really vicious attack so emma and her sister are close obviously probably brought closer together by this experience and um obviously they move out of the, the safe house but they they move somewhere with their mother um she ends that relationship and they share a bedroom as well, so they haven't got a lot of space. They spend a lot of time together playing. They're quite close. But Charlotte, her sister, um, age nine, develops a heart condition and there's complications. And she has an operation to to deal with this, but she ends up dying as a result of that operation. Oh, God. So Emma, again... So she's lost, well, effectively yeah. lost her dad. Her mum's obviously her dad's not a, been the same. Yeah, her dad's like her a violent dead. bastard. Her mum's in a series of other domestically violent relationships after this relationship and her sister dies. She's seven years old. So out of grief, the mother, and she admits now that it wasn't the right thing to do, um, brings Charlotte's body back to the house and like put the body in her bed. Uh, my parents did that. Yeah, I remember you saying that you, yeah, your sibling. Well, I had a... Um a sister that died when she was like two and a half and my parents brought her home to say goodbye to me and my brother and then took her back. Because I'm surprised that you can do that but she wasn't supposed to. You weren't to, allowed, no, you're not supposed to. They were like escaped from the hospital. Yeah. See, um, so Charlotte's body is in the house um, in the mother's bed and then, and then in a casket. Um, and um, Gosh, and this is quite recent as well. This is the 90s, isn't yeah. it? That's not really a normal thing. Yeah. Um, and she said it was the wrong thing to do, but it, she was more focusing on her own grief and she wasn't thinking about how it's going to affect her daughter. Two weeks. It's a lot, isn't it? So obviously all this has taken its toll on Emma. And by the age of 13, she's being bullied at school as, as well to add insult to injury. So she starts drinking, showing patterns of bad behaviour, but she also works out that if she hangs out with the bad boys at school, people don't bully her anymore because they're too scared. So she starts sort of like hanging out with people that she shouldn't be hanging out, sort of as a means of protecting herself. Mm. So it's further compacted by the relationships her mother's had. So she's still in violent relationships 
And um, Emma's aware of this as well. There's men coming around the house and it's a bit of a toxic environment. So Emma's relationships follow her mother's pattern. And she actually had a boyfriend that was so abusive when she was a teenager that he fractured her skull and she was hospitalised and she had a leak on the brain. What the hell? So this is just like a really fucked up situation. Now to bring a bit of psychology in, because sometimes I do that, Bowlby, so he's like a psychologist he's it's quite an old theory he was around in the 40s and he came up with this idea of an internal working model and he basically said that your childhood relationships are a blueprint and a framework for your later relationships so say that you are parented badly and you have um a lot of neglect and abuse you're much more likely to end up being that kind of parent or have more like short-term relationships or get divorced um and even just like minor differences so um like if you if you like have an avoidant relationship where uh, your parent isn't really in tune with your needs then that, that will come back in your later relationships mm. and that's i guess that's kind of why you do see uh sort of cycles of abuse or you do yeah. have people who um a lot of people who go into care or have children who go into care had a traumatic childhood themselves i think yeah a lot of i wouldn't say it's I know there's people that refute everything, but I think that's sort of that sort of theory has sunk into like the general population's idea of it. Because I think a yeah. lot of people feel like, oh, I've seen my parents have this really. Like, I think people recognize that, start to recognize yeah. that that they repeat patterns, don't they? Yeah, because if you think this is what childhood's supposed to look like, then I guess you could emulate that later on. It is a bit determinist, which essentially mm. means that it's not really taking into account people have got free will and and it, it's suggesting that there's not a lot you can do which i don't think is true by any means but maybe it goes to explain a little bit why people i think struggle. you're affected by it because i guess if you've seen your parents have um not an abusive one but say like a, a relationship where they, they didn't ever speak to each other then i guess you've got that choice to go one of two ways now you've got that model you can either be like recreate it yeah. that's what it should be like or you can go the other way and be like i overshare with everybody because this is the sort of yeah thing, childhood that i had before yeah i think so i think it's easier if you have an easy childhood just to everything's easier if you just <laughs> grow up normally yeah uh so Emma got pregnant. Oh, gosh. I uh, feel so... Yeah. This life. I know. Uh, so she gave birth to a little girl. Things didn't work out with the father. So when her daughter was a year old, she met James, which is the the guy that she's later stabbed uh, in 2015, James Knight. He it already sounds like he's yeah. going to be an abuser. Well, I'm not holding out much hope. <laughs> so he had two children with a woman called Becky, um, and they had been together for nine years and he cheated on Becky with Emma and was spending a lot of evenings out as well as he was started smoking cannabis and taking steroids. And Becky said their relationship was falling apart and she asked him to move out. But she sort of thought that maybe he'd, he'd be like, oh no, I don't want to lose everything. But she was yeah, like, more okay. Of an ultimatum. <laughs> yeah, so he just moved out and moved in with Emma pretty quickly. Um, now a lot of all of what i'm telling you has come from newspaper articles uh, there's no books on this because it's pretty recent so you've kind of got to take it with a pinch of salt as well because i think becky's story was in the sun and obviously i don't, I don't know how reputable it is and people put words in people's mouths as well so just bear that in mind so at the beginning of emma and james's relationships things seemed to be going pretty well they seemed happy um this comes from some neighbors who the uh said that you know they were hanging out they were we saw them on the street they seemed pretty happy but then they began to notice more arguments and they thought well they're pretty normal for people to start arguing when they've moved in together but then they became quite heated if you're a neighbor and you notice the arguments <laughs> it's too much it's not like yeah. you, they're your friends and we were hanging out and all they started niggling at each other it's like i live two doors down and i know that that couple argue yeah. it's too much I know that my neighbours argue. I know my neighbours argue as well. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm just waiting. And they shout at their kids so bad. I'm just waiting for the one time when I hear something. I'm like, I've got social services on speed dial. James began to put pressure on Emma to stay home more often. So he became pretty controlling. He'd complain about her wearing makeup. He'd comment on the clothes that she'd wear. And workmates noticed a change in his mood. Um, but Emma's mum has said she also began to notice bruises on her daughter. 
March 2016, Emma becomes pregnant with James's baby. Unfortunately, she's quite quickly results in having a miscarriage. Incredibly stressful, incredibly awful. And she has to go to hospital and he has to have the baby removed in a procedure, which is really invasive. But then this is unsuccessful and she has to go back and have the procedure again. Uh, What did they think they'd taken out? I know. She has to go through this twice. It's horrific. Um, Emma's mum has said that Emma phoned her and she said that it was James's fault that she'd lost the baby. Which is quite a clear link to Ruth Ellis that we looked at. Uh, yes, the last it's had. sounding very Ruth Ellisy. Yeah, but again, a lot of this comes from uh, Emma's mom. I don't know. I, I I can't say whether it's been sort of backed up by other evidence or not. So it's also reported that while she was at the hospital, a nurse witnessed James coming to the hospital and saying Emma's a slag. Um, the baby's black. She's cheated on me. She's lost it because she cheated on me with a black guy. Like, really offensive, racist crap. And they had to call the police and have him removed. Again, I've just read this in an article as hearsay, so I don't know. I didn't see anything like a nurse being I didn't interviewed. see anything. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> um, I, like, there wasn't any, like, a nurse so-and-so says this. Like, right. It's, again, it's sort of, I'm really not sure what the you know, what the evidence is for it. But it is claimed in the press by Emma's mum that this happened. And then, but then James's mum says it's all bollocks, basically, and that he was really happy about the baby. While they were out on the night that James died, so we're going back to uh, when they were out in Leicester, he had to be removed from a nightclub. Now this is backed up by evidence. So he, in the the nightclub where they had an argument, um, police were called because he was kicking off and... Uh, some sources have said that James thought the bouncers were giving Emma too much attention, but he was getting into fights. He was slightly wild. Uh, he told the police. That's like when the kids are like, get really pissed off because they're like, you keep telling me, just be quiet. I'm like, yeah, because you're talking. Like, like there was one kid who was like um, saying that I don't want to go in the classroom with this teacher because she keeps looking at me. And I'm like, what do you mean looking at you? He was like, yeah, she stares at me. And I'm like, well are you doing anything to be looked at for? And then I spoke to the teacher, not saying, why are you looking at him? Just like, oh, he's being really weird today. And she was like, he always spins in his chair. Of course she's looking at you. No, he's like, oh, they're giving my girlfriend attention. No, I think it's because you're fighting. Yeah, because you're (laughs) screaming your head up. And he said to the police, I just want to touch my girlfriend. Really weird, controlly, creepy stuff. Now also... Before getting in a taxi home, there's CCTV footage that records him grabbing Emma by the throat and pushing her onto the floor. Um, she got, she gets up. She doesn't retaliate at this point. He had it coming. He had it, it coming. It's a bit Chicago, isn't it? So in the taxi on the way home as well, this is uh, evidenced by the taxi driver who actually gave uh, evidence at court that James was on top of her, hitting her, and he stopped the taxi and he told him to get out because he was attacking Emma in the taxi as well. So when they arrived home, there's a little bit more to that as well oh than, than it, it wasn't as clear cut as we thought. A neighbour claimed that when she went into the house and locked him out, he'd been banging on the door saying, let me in. And the neighbour has reported hearing Emma shout, I'm not letting you in because of what happened last time. So suggesting that there has been some violence there and she's scared, which changes the whole scenario a little bit. Yeah. Emma said not long after this that he had been strangling her, saying he had never wanted the baby. So obviously pushing her buttons. Um, And after that, and it is after this that she'd stabbed him. Her mother has also spoken out saying that Emma believed that James was going to kill her that night. So... Emma's mum has also, uh, she spoke at a conference about... Uh, All right, Emma's mum. Well, she basically, uh, she's spoken about um, what happened at trial and the verdict. And she said that even after being stabbed, James had continued shouting at Emma and claimed that he was fine. So Emma had basically stabbed him and then gone, oh my God, oh my God. And he'd be like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Was- yeah, because the neighbours spoke to him after the stabbing, hadn't they? So yeah. it wasn't like she kept stabbing him to death. and like. So she's trying to explain this 30 minutes effectively. And she said that he was walking around ranting and raving still. 
and he could have still killed her in that time and then and then he walked down the road to his brother's house which is a few doors down and it was there that he'd collapsed um and then the brother had helped emma take him back to the house and then it was shortly after that she'd actually phoned the ambulance so this 30 minutes wasn't necessarily him dead and her sitting there going oh, shall I phone the ambulance or not? But the things were happening in that time. Yeah. The brother has said, though, that he, she didn't tell him that she'd stabbed him. She just said, oh, God, he's drunk, he's aggressive. She hasn't said, I've stabbed him. But Joanne claims that Emma didn't know that he was dying because he was really drunk. He'd also taken drugs. Um, and she thought that he'd collapsed because of that, because of all these drugs and things. And she didn't realise how hard she'd stabbed him. Yeah. Um, especially if you've just you know if you're not used to stabbing people and you just if you if she'd drawn it out straight away yeah like, i don't think like you take into account how deep you've put it in like i don't yeah, think I don't, yeah i don't know but well, i mean and he seemed fine so you probably didn't realize you got him in the heart and you just yeah. think but then if you listen to the 999 call which you can do online i listen to the whole thing it's not Ooh. that long He's he's making some really weird noises in the background, and she's really like flippant. It's it's a very strange call. So she phones up and says, "My boyfriend's acting really weird. He's making weird noises, and he's lying on the floor." Like what sort of noises? Like moaning or like? Should we listen to it? No. Okay. I hate a nine nine nine. They give me nightmares. Right, it's seriously, grim. I don't know. Basically, she's sort of telling him off. So he's making these no it's like weird, like uh sort of like weird. Is she drunk noises. too though as well? I think so. But then she says, Oh, I think he's just having me him on having me on and she keeps going, James, 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 would you just look at me? It's a really strange call. And the operator is pretty useless as well. He's just like, Oh, well, I don't really know what you want me to do. Like he's it go go and listen to it and talk. Do like a a chat on the Facebook group. What do you think of this 999 call? Because it is a really confusing one. This is obviously played at trial. and um, But at trial, they don't mention any of her childhood, any of the previous abuse, uh, the relationships that she's had. Don't bring up the fact she lost her sister, that her mum's been in abusive relationships. They play the 999 call, but apparently there's, well, there are two more 999 calls that I haven't been able to find online. But, but if anything, the 999 call would show that she would prove that she didn't see know how bad it was. Well, she did, yeah, but Do you always, know what I mean? It's not, yeah. like, oh, it's not like, oh, I've killed him and I'm being flippant. It's like, she didn't, yeah, she, she didn't says, think it was that serious. Because he says on the phone, oh, it's going to be a while. And she went, yeah, no rush. But then apparently she did phone up a couple of times afterwards and said, no, you have to come now. It, it, this is serious. And she's much more stressed. And those weren't played at trial and uh she'd also gone back to james's brother's house screaming he's dead and been banging on the door so it's not quite as sort of like flippant as yeah we thought i think if she's telling him off i think that just shows that she because he's drunk you know when people are drunk and they're so difficult to manage like. yeah and also evidence of abuse um emma had also phoned her grandmother who'd got who'd got a taxi straight there and this was after they took james away and Emma had had marks on her neck that her grandmother saw. So there's evidence of of her being strangled. Um, So psychologist reports also weren't brought up at court, which were supposed to be followed up, um, which looked into her mental health and the possibility that she had autism or borderline personality disorder. And they weren't mentioned or followed up or chased up and brought up at court, which could have been quite significant. The media also really painted her as this cold-blooded killer. One newspaper claimed she sacrificed him, which is weird. I think it was the son again. <laughs> so, And then the story that Becky told about the ex, it was like, he's the perfect family man, and then she came along, and now he's dead, and it's ruined our lives. It was really, really biased. There's also previous reports uh, to the police by Emma about James as well. Um, I'm not sure how much was included in those, but... There's evidence of previous abuse. So Emma received a 17-year sentence for the murder of James Knight. Uh, but following the trial, the case was taken up by Justice for Women. And they argued that the trial had missed out on loads of important information, such as her history of experiences of domestic abuse, the fact mm. that she might have emotionally unstable personality disorder or pervasive 
developmental disorder or autism, autistic spectrum disorder. So they uh, submitted an application on 22nd of November last year, so oh, a couple okay. of months ago, and it was supported by a psychiatric and psychological evidence. Um, and they've actually given permission for the appeal. So it's sort of the first stage of that process. Now, I'm not sort of podcasting to say, oh, you know, get her out, she's innocent. But like I believe that she's got the right to a, a trial where all the evidence is presented. So I would sort of suggest that it's a good idea that there is a retrial. But it, it just goes to show that like everything's not so cut and dry as you, you think. And like the media can really just put an aggressive spin on things now you can take it from here and follow that story if you're interested i think what i feel after that is that we should all go and say something nice to a person that's looked after us in our lives (laughs) yeah like go thank your mums or your aunties or someone because some people's families are crap aren't they yeah right (laughs) (laughs) so some families are crap that's all from me Good night. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.